When he was only 16, Paul McCartney wrote the song, When I'm 64. It became one of the many memorable songs released on the Beatles' 1967 album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. In the song, McCartney ponders a question about what surely must have seemed like his distant future with the line, Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? There have been many covers of this song, including one by John Lennon's son, Julian, in 2008. As I heard that song on the radio as a kid, the idea that I would someday be that old was certainly quite an abstraction. But as a line from the great 70s song, Fly Like an Eagle by the Steve Miller Band goes, time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. And now I find myself at that iconic age of 64, though fortunately still needed and fed. But to be honest, I do have some concerns about that question, will you still feed me? I'm not actually as worried about whether we can continue to innovate enough to feed the world, but my real concern is about who will be doing that as you and I and everyone else kind of keep slipping into that future. That's the issue we'll try to unpack on today's Pop Agriculture Podcast. Today, particularly in affluent societies like ours, only a small subset of the population is required to do the actual farming needed to feed the rest of us. We recently got to see a profile of that small part of our society because in April of this year, the USDA published the 2017 Census of Agriculture, a detailed survey that's completed every five years. It includes key data that speaks to this question of who it is that's going to be feeding us. As of 2017, there were 3.4 million agricultural producers in the U.S. That means people who are directly involved in making decisions on farms. That's only about 1% of us. And 1.23 million of those producers in this survey were females, a number that's 27% higher than that in 2012. But much of that change is probably because they they made some changes in, in the way they did the survey. But the consistent theme since earlier surveys has been that the age distribution of our producers is decidedly weighted towards older people. The average age of producer in 2017 was 57 and a half years old, and that follows a long-term trend that our farmers are getting older. Over the past 15 years, the proportion of young farmers, let's say under 35, has stayed virtually constant at just under 10%. The proportion of middle-aged farmers has dropped steadily, going from 47% down to 30%. And it's the 55 and over segment that has increased the most, going from 45% in 2002 to 62% in 2017. And the fastest-growing age group these days are, are folks like me who can talk about when I'm 64 from recent personal experience. That's 28% of farmers uh, in 2017 between 65 and 74. And then the sort of scary thing is that the 75 and older group went from 8 to 12% of farmers in that same time frame. The old song, Old McDonald's, is sounding kind of accurate. 
Now, we all know seniors who have plenty of good years to contribute long past the traditional retirement age of 65. I certainly hope to keep contributing for many more years. But the trends emphasized by this latest census should certainly give us pause to consider that who question about feeding not just those of us who live in the U.S., but millions of people from Europe to Africa to Asia who also depend, at least in part, on the amazing productivity of American farms. There's also an ongoing surge of retirements in the ag technology sector these days, and that's going to further push this who question. We baby boomers, who grew up listening to the Beatles, are now reaching potential retirement age, and quite a few of these folks have the option of accepting an exit package because of the most recent consolidation that's been going on in the ag technology business sector. The downside from this is that we're losing a lot of knowledge and experience. And because these are the folks who have been working on the innovations to support farmers as they navigate the serious and ever-shifting challenges of farming. I've been watching many of my long-term colleagues in ag science companies taking well-earned retirement packages. There are similar trends in public research institutions. There are lots of folks who share my concern about the question of who will be there to assist who will be feeding us. This could have a real impact, say, during the lifetime of my children or my grandchildren. Add to this the recent trend that fewer and fewer college students are pursuing ag-related degrees like agronomy, plant science, or pest-related disciplines like entomology, plant pathology, nematology, or weed science. So a declining scientific experience base combined with fewer new entrants, certainly represents a challenge for agriculture overall. Now, this can actually represent a good career opportunity for young people today. Many ag technology companies have been hiring new employees with degrees from non-ag-related fields within the range of biology and environmental sciences, and then they give them on-the-job training. I was pleased to learn that several of these organizations ask their new hires to listen to our library of pop agriculture podcasts to help them get up to speed on farming issues. As I discussed in an earlier podcast titled Farm is a Verb, the incredibly diverse business of farming shares common themes of extraordinary financial risk driven by dynamic variables like weather, pests, and prices, all compounded by the minimal market leverage of individual producers. This year, we've been hearing a lot about how farmers are being seriously affected by extreme climate events and by being used as pawns in skirmishes related to international trade. But farming hasn't just recently become a difficult enterprise, so it's no wonder that many historic family farms have accepted or even encouraged their kids to pursue other kinds of careers. Ironically, the fact that farmers have been able to feed more and more people over time has allowed them to become a sort of obscure other group in our society, and they often end up being inaccurately and unfairly demonized in our public discourse. It's hard to know how much that negativity feeds into the lack of young people trying to enter farming or pursuing farm-related careers, but farmers feeling themselves under attack or misunderstood isn't a new phenomenon. At a rest stop along California's Interstate 5 corridor, in the still very agricultural Central Coast, there's a plaque that that really struck me. It was a line from the Farmers Alliance songbook from the 1890s, and it says, It would put them to the test if the farmer took a rest, then they'd know it's the farmer feeds them all. 
And that was from a time when more than 40% of the population still farmed. When I was in high school in the early 70s in the Denver suburbs, I saw a bumper sticker that made a big impression on me. It said, don't complain about farmers with your mouth full. That was a time when there was still 8% of our society in farming. And there's one more problematic trend that has to do with this who will feed us question. Much of the shift to the kinds of modern farming that requires fewer farmers has been enabled by technology, ranging from mechanization to efficient means of pest control. But there are certain key tasks that still require manual, in-the-field labor. Jobs like hand-weeding, pruning, or hand-harvesting are not what most Americans want to do or imagine as something for their children to do when they grow up. Honestly, most of us wouldn't have the stamina to do it. As part of my recent consulting work, I've spent quite a bit of time in strawberry fields looking at experimental plots, and there are often picking crews nearby doing the delicate and strenuous job of, of gathering that delicious fruit. I've observed pickers out in the rows stooping to select just the right berries, gently placing them in a tray in the plastic clamshell containers that end up in our stores, and they carry the full trays over to a collection spot on the edge of the field where they're weighed and prepped for transport. Many of the pickers then sprint back to the part of the field still to be picked because they're paid on the, the number of trays that they pick in a day. The pickers can actually do pretty well on that basis, even better than the uh, higher hourly rate that was set recently by the California legislature. This is hard work with long hours, and, and the farmers in the strawberry industry and, and many others, like table grapes or certain vegetables, are finding it harder and harder to find people willing and able to do this kind of labor. And there are ongoing efforts to find ways to eliminate the hardest kinds of hand labor and someday we might even have advanced robots that can do something like pick strawberries. There may also be a future solution to something like stressful hand weeding, something that persists in organic farming in particular because they can't use herbicides. There's a rather sobering interview with my predecessor at CropLife Foundation about that topic you can see on YouTube. Most other developed countries have a more viable guest worker program to fulfill this kind of labor need without effectively asking people to live under the radar. Without getting into politics, we need to acknowledge that our country's system isn't good for either farmers or laborers. This dysfunction may ultimately come around to bite consumers. We will never adequately address this aspect of the who question about our food supply without some much more enlightened approach to how we enlist and treat those who cover our need for hand labor on farms. So are there any reasons for hope? Are there good ideas being floated about the future of who will feed us? I'd say there are some. Younger Americans can certainly become interested in farming or agriculture-related careers, and there are organizations that are all about generating that kind of interest and providing support, such as Agriculture Future of America and Future Farmers of America. Last year, we posted a pop agriculture segment where I interviewed one of these future farmers named uh, Zach Jacobs. I've had the opportunity to meet quite a few other young people uh, pursuing similar paths, and their enthusiasm is encouraging. Now, I know some long-term ag experts who've developed undergraduate classes designed to provide the big picture about agriculture, and then they offer it at colleges that don't have ag programs like the ones in uh, land-grant ag schools. And these teachers uh, report a very positive reception from their students, ones who have no previous farming background, 
And then they end up, in many cases, uh, pursuing a graduate program in a farming-related field. Another draw for younger people has been the ever-increasing role of technology in farming. This involves things like big data and remote imaging or other geospatial data in the development of a precision farming method. In some cases, this has been a driver for attracting the next generation in long-term farming families, and in other cases, from those with no family ag history at all. Beyond high-tech aspects of modern farming, there are some major themes that align with the basic priority of those who might want to be part of the new generation of farmers. Those who are going to pass their 64 milestone towards the middle of this century or beyond are legitimately motivated to take action around the threat of climate change. That could be a reason to want to pursue a farming career because agriculture has an important role to play in greenhouse gas dynamics. By employing practices such as minimum tillage, cover cropping, or prairie strips, farmers can help to sequester large amounts of carbon in agricultural soils. Also, involvement in rational intensification of farming on existing land is a way that farmers can help prevent the substantial carbon re-emissions that happen if existing grassland or forest has to be converted to farming to meet increasing global food demand. One trend that could help motivate a new generation of farmers is the effort to define what sustainable agriculture really means using quantifiable outcome metrics. To the extent that this can guide the future of crop production towards science-driven rather than marketing-driven goals, it should be attractive to those who really want to make a difference. But if we really want to enable a next generation of farmers, there need to be some new paradigms when it comes to access to land, capital, and equipment. In an earlier podcast titled, You Can't Buy the Farm, But You Can Rent It, we talked about how the nature of property leases needs to be updated to encourage those sustainable farming practices, the ones that would be logically attracted to a generation that wants to be part of the solution to climate change. Beginning farmers need a support network in terms of expertise, but also in terms of capital, operating loans, and crop insurance. So, ensuring that we will continue to have the people with the passion, training, and innovation support to keep feeding us may sound like a tall order, but there is hope if we take the challenges seriously. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.